the mind, by nature, is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is because of visiting forces known as kalesas that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces known as kalesas that we suffer. So as you reflect over your experiences of the day and you consider what kind of suffering you endured or enjoyed or were victimized by, um, impatience, frustration, disappointment, stress, irritation, um, struggling, uh, these are just kind of the familiar ones. The Buddha said that all that is caused by just some force visiting the mind. It's not who you are. It's not how you are. It's not a uh, evaluation of how well you're doing the practice. It's a visitor to the mind. Now, if we can hear this, what the Buddha is saying, these are visitors to the mind that cause this kind of suffering and even greater suffering. We, we would want to know, I would think, we would want to know and understand what's, what's with this stuff. How do we, how is it that we're so entangled with these visitors? Why does it feel like it's who we are or how we are or our personality? <clears throat> because if we look carefully at these visitors to the mind, we'll come to understand them. And this understanding of them is the key to not being so entangled and therefore not suffering so much. Uthagenia says, it is not you who removes these torments or these kalesas. Wisdom does that job. So we're off the hook. I mean, we really don't have to try to we don't have to try to get rid of them. That trying would be, again, a form of desire, attachment, striving, another form of suffering. But rather it's understanding, it's wisdom that'll do that job. So what are these forces to the mind? What are these kalesas, sometimes translated as obstructions, obscurations, hindrances, defilements, uh, all kinds of, well, bad things. They're torments. The word kalesa is translated as torment. They are the um, habitual, reactive uh, states of mind that somehow have been cultivated as strategies for dealing with some of the challenges of life. We have kind of co-opted them as strategies to deal with the pleasant, unpleasant, the overwhelming, the vulnerable, the fearful conditions that, well, we all face. No one escapes facing unpleasant experiences in life. And there isn't any of us that hasn't been seduced over and over and over again by fantasies of fulfilled desires and everything in between. <coughs> so it's these habitual and reactive unskillful states of mind. Now, interestingly, they are all fueled by restlessness. And restlessness is the mind just off on a thinking train <coughs> that we don't know when we got on, we don't know where we're going. We don't know when we're getting off. We're just thinking. And the mind is just going here and going there, thinking about anything. And that is the fuel for all of these habits of mind. Because for the most part, they are deeply conditioned, and so they erupt or they arise in reaction unconsciously. We don't... You might, you might notice. We don't have to stop and think about now, should I get impatient with this situation or not? You know, it's just, it's just there, isn't it? Or anger. 
you know, we see something and we just get indignant or angry or self-righteous. It's like, we don't have to stop and think about, now let me think, is this a good thing to do or not? If we ever stopped and thought about it, we'd probably decide, no, that's not such a good thing to do. So we don't, we don't have that time. So it's this restlessness which manifests to us, as you have seen today, when trying as, as best we can, with all good intention to remember to recognize the present moment, we fail miserably. The mind wanders off. We don't see when it wanders off. We don't know where it's going. We don't know what it's thinking about. We don't know what we think about what we're thinking about. We don't know our posture, our age, our name, the time of day. We don't know anything. And yet, all of those wandering minds are about us. It's all some narrative about my life. What I want, what I'm going to do, and how I think about this, and how I feel about that, and views and opinions and comments, preferences, fantasies, old memories. And we might think, well, what's the harm of that? I wasn't wasn't even paying attention to it. But the harm of this wandering mind, this restless mind that just scrolling over different narratives of your life, is that it reaffirms over and over again the assumptions, the beliefs, the wrong views, the conditioning that we have received from others. It's just kind of a constant affirmation of wrong views, mistaken beliefs, assumptions about the way things should be, the way I should be, the way you should be. And we don't see that that's the fuel for strengthening unskillful conditioning. So it's not that these unseen, wandering minds are kind of benign. They're not. They are really dangerous in the sense that they just strengthen, well, delusion. They're also all accompanied by some kind of ignorance or delusion. When we're lost in thought, we are ignorant of anything. But delusion is a little different. Delusion, and I make this distinction, this is my distinction, other teachers will use other ways of talking about this, but delusion, I say, is we know what's going on, we see what's going on, and yet we understand it wrongly. We ascribe value, meaning, and purpose to an event that it doesn't warrant. We have all kinds of uh, assumptions about why people say and do the things they do. And we, and we believe our assumptions without checking it out often. We ascribe value and meaning and purpose to them that we don't know if they have or not. We also do it to ourselves in the sense that when desire arises in the mind and we look at things in the store window or something walking by us on the street, what we see of that object is only its pleasant qualities. It's not that that thing doesn't have unpleasant qualities, it's that desires in the mind and it blinds us to unpleasantness. This is, this is the nature of desire. It causes the mind to see only the pleasant characteristics of what it's looking at. Conversely, when aversion enters the mind, it causes the mind, this is its nature, it causes the mind to see or to understand, misunderstand, that this that you're looking at, this that you're contemplating, has only these unpleasant characteristics. We can't see the pleasant. Now, the the truly amazing uh, mental gymnastics that we can engage in is today we can look at this person through the eyes of desire and think, yes, perfect. Yes, okay. And two weeks later, when the dark side of the moon rises, we look at the same person and we go, what was I thinking? 
<laughs> and it doesn't. It's not just people. It's you know the watch, the car, the the, the movie, that the food, the clothes. You know, we are vulnerable to these visitors to the mind. And the thing is, we believe the mind all the time. Most of the time, we believe our thoughts. You know, I need this, I want this, this is great, this is perfect. And we, we believe that. And later, when aversion enters the mind, we say, I don't need this thing, I don't want that thing, I can't stand that thing. And we believe that. This is, this is the mind. This is the, this is the activity of the mind. This is the, the power of these visitors to the mind is to totally confuse us. Fueled by restlessness, rooted in delusion or uh, ignorance, often accompanied by desire in the form of wanting, craving, feeling entitled to, being identified with, uh, yearning, enjoying, or conversely, often accompanied by aversion. The grossest forms being anger, rage, uh, violence, hatred. Then there's the oppressive, internalized versions of aversion, which are frustration, disappointment, despair, depression, fear, irritation, impatience. And then there's the pushing away, complaining, whinging, whining, feeling disdain for And these are all ways of just pushing away, resisting, striking out at unpleasant experiences. But normally, all that I've just mentioned, we've all experienced all of them. You know, it's not like we're, they're strangers to us. We've experienced all of those states of mind and they are so habitual, they're so frequent, they're so kind of normal, if you want to think of it that way, that we just take them for granted. Well, this is just how it is or how it has to be. This is just how I am. And when they're so habitual and they arise in the mind so frequently, we stop paying attention to them. We just act them out. So when that happens, you know, a moment of impatience arises, for example. There's some set of conditions arising, and we feel impatience. And then when we, when we act that out and make a fool of ourselves, later we reflect, we say, God, I'm always impatient. And that is just the one short step away from thinking and believing. I'm an impatient person. Now, a moment of impatience, if we could see it, arises due to conditions. It's there, and then it passes away. But when we identify with it, or when we etern eternalize it and say, I'm always impatient, or we, we don't say that, we're never always anything, but there's the feeling like, when, we're, when we feel impatience, it feels like that's the way it's going to be forever in this situation. And so we eternalize a momentary experience and have this assumption that I'm always this way or I always react this way. And once we feel that or once we kind of buy into or don't see that assumption, we then kind of identify with, with this experience and say, I'm an impatient person. Now, once that belief gets in your mind, Every time you're impatient, or every time impatience arises, it reaffirms that belief, I'm an impatient person. And that belief is almost impossible to get out of your mind. And it's not just impatience, it's with fear, it's with doubt, it's with desire, it's with jealousy, it's with envy, it's with all of the, well, personality traits that you think you are. just to cut to the end of the talk, the Pasana practice is to 
see this identification with these momentary appearances and recognizing that they're impermanent. They don't last. They're not you. They're not me. And not kind of falling into this these assumptions about them and about ourselves. But how do we get there? This is the story of the talk. <laughs> so these these torments so habitual, we eternalize them. We get identified with them. We appropriate them as mine. It's me. This is who I am. My infant, in my impatience, my fear, my anger. And they obstruct our ability to live life fully. Just think for a minute, in your own life, how much fear you've experienced. Fear of public speaking, fear of meeting strangers, fear of traveling in unknown places, fear of failure, fear of social judgment, fear of being shamed, shamed or humiliated, and what you haven't done out of fear. How much of our life have we not yet lived because we've been caught in fear? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And as we go through life, we just keep finding things that we can be afraid of and gradually, over, over the course of initial years of life, we shrink the zone of non-fear to just what's comfortable, familiar, habitual, limited. And we just don't go there. And so we live just a very small, narrow slice of what it is possible to experience and know as a human being out of fear, being identified with this fear. It also, they also obstruct or they hinder our Dharma practice, take doubt. So we, 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 we find some inspiration in the Dharma, we read a book, we hear a teacher, something, and we get some some amount of faith, some amount of interest. And then we take a look a little further and it's like, wow, this looks pretty tough. <laughs> you know, this is, this is challenging. And out of doubt, we often feel paralyzed. You know, and it's said that doubt is, you know, the feeling you would have if traveling in a foreign country, walking down a road alone, and you came to a fork in the road and there was no sign. <laughs> what, do you, what do you feel? What do you, what do, you do? You're walking down the road, you're going in this direction and there's an intersection and no sign. That paralysis of indecision and no way of knowing or, or, or apparently knowing. This happens in practice a lot. You know, when confronted with pain in the body, restlessness in the mind, emotional upheavals, uh, some new teacher teaching something that you haven't heard before, <laughs> we feel like, is this right? How do I do this? And Am I doing it right? And what do I do now? So when these kind of questions arise in your practice, what do I do with this? Am I doing it right? If you entertain that thought, you're caught in the mental state, or the visitor, you're caught by the visitor, doubt. On the other hand, if you can see, oh, this is the manifestation of doubt, this is the nature of doubt, oh, this is what doubt does. Doubt gives rise to these kinds of questions. If you keep practicing through the experience of doubt, not trying to answer the question of the doubt, but practicing through it, you'll get... You'll, you'll grow through doubt. You'll grow in confidence. But if you get caught by the content, paralyzed. And it's not only doubt about practice, it's doubt about all kinds of things in life. They just hinder our ability to move freely in our own life. So I, I, I go on about this a little bit just so you can understand that 
even though we're familiar and even though we live with them and we're, you know, we're no strangers. They're no stranger to us. But we have a wrong attitude, meaning we just accept them. We just accept our impatience. We accept our irritation. We accept our judgment. We accept our fear. We accept our doubt. We accept it as just, well, this is just how I am. Do you believe, do you even believe that it's possible to be free of fear? Doubt. Jealousy. Envy. Aversion. Anger. Hatred. Impatience. Do you think it's even possible? For anybody. Not not necessarily you. For anybody. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard to believe. And yet, that's what the Buddha is pointing to. These torments don't arise accidentally. They arise due to causes and conditions. And because of that, they are a natural phenomena. They're not being assailed in some unnatural way. When causes and conditions arise, sufficient to give rise to one of these states of mind, you can't avoid it. It'll happen. But that means that it is an opportunity it's not necessarily an obstacle to, to awareness practice and insight practice or understanding. It's an opportunity. Because we can be aware of them and we can understand them through insight. So rather than being stopped, blocked, uh, stymied, paralyzed by any of them, we can see them as actually just another object with which to develop awareness, understanding, liberation. So as I've mentioned briefly, and I'm going to mention again, when the Buddha realized the truth of the end of suffering, and he spoke about it to the five ascetics that he had been practicing with before his awakening, he spoke about the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering caused by craving. There is an end to suffering, and the end to suffering is through the development of the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is three trainings. So I mentioned yesterday that we're practicing sila, we're practicing the precepts here, and through the precepts we're able to get a handle on or exercise some restraint with the transgressive defilements, the transgressive torments, the ones that cause us to harm others. When they're, they're the grossest form of acting out desire and aversion and fear, whatever. And because they harm others, of course they harm ourselves. But if we exercise that kind of restraint, if we're mindful enough to notice the intention before speaking or acting, then we can arrest or exercise some restraint with that level of visitor to the mind. But when we're obsessed, even though we're not acting it out, and we practice mindfulness, then mindfulness, mm, awareness, mindfulness observes the obsessive qualities or the obsessive degree of these torments. And a moment of mindfulness is a wholesome moment. A moment of fear, a moment of desire, a moment of jealousy, a moment of depression is an unwholesome moment. So even though that may be the object, if there is awareness of an unwholesome state of mind, that becomes a wholesome state. So being aware of any of these visitors to the mind is a wholesome activity. Now, oftentimes we think, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm caught in um, drama while we're practicing, and we think, this is just getting worse. I'm aware of it, but it's, it's, it's terrible. You know, I don't like it. I'm trying to get rid of it. And if we're just being aware of it, that's actually good, skillful practice. <clears throat> if we're trying to just get rid of it, that's another layer of aversion. But 
even mindfulness is not enough. Because there are times in our life when conditions are going to be such that the latent potential of resorting to aversion as a strategy for dealing with something or desire as a strategy for dealing with dissatisfaction. Conditions are going to arise where we're going to resort to those states of mind. And so the Buddha said, the third training is the training in Vipassana, or insight, knowledge, where we learn to purify our understanding of the latent defilements. It's not like the latent defilements are kind of like just kind of hiding in there behind some crevice of the brain. It's not that. But we are susceptible to the arising of conditions that give rise to to them. So it's that potential, the potential resorting to these states of mind that Vipassana addresses. So, having heard this little preamble about the nature of these torments to the mind, the danger of them, and their ubiquity in some sense, how do we work with them? What's, what's, what's to be done now with them? Because it's pretty clear that they're pretty prevalent, right? You can just nod your head if you agree. Or if you don't agree, you don't have to listen to anymore. <laughs> so, so, what's important is that we hear about them. That we hear this information that these are visitors to the mind. They're dangerous in the sense that they cause us suffering. Just kind of avoiding them or uh, denying them or just acting them out only strengthens them. It's important to hear all this so that we don't confuse ourselves or kind of trick ourselves into believing it's really okay to act them out. It's okay to just stuff it. It's not. They just grow in strength. Sayadutajani is really savvy about these defilements. He says, you know, we have these, we experience them. And when we say, I'm going to retreat, and the defilements just look at you and say, how long are you going to be on retreat? (laughs) (laughs) A week? Okay. You got a week free. And they just wait. They just wait until you finish your retreat, then they come back. Of course, you know, some of them kind of tagged along. But you cannot trick them, you know. If you're not on your game every moment, they're there. They just fill up the mind instantly. And so even just having this firm resolve, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get angry, that's not going to cut it. Because we're going to forget. Okay. So we need to hear this information so that we can begin to understand and this is knowledge, so that we can begin to understand what these are, why we work with them, why we want to be aware of them, and how we can do that. So that we know, hmm, these are dangerous. Then, the first step in working with them is to recognize them. Now, I can talk about them, and you all know the words, you all know what I'm talking about, But it's amazing, we can hear that, and yet when we're caught in fear, we don't recognize it. When we're caught in anger, we don't recognize it. When we're caught in desire, we don't recognize it. We just take it for granted and just like, this is the way it is. Because we've never, or until we practice, we haven't really made an effort to take a look and and exercise some restraint and and work with them. So maybe our biggest challenge is, well, remember to recognize the present moment's experience <laughs> when when they arise. And it's hard enough to do it with something that's not dangerous, like the breath. Just think how much more challenging it is with an unpleasant habit or a, a harmful habit that has deep roots, even. So to, to 
begin to recognize them in our own experience is important, well, essential. Unless we see them in our own mind and how they arise and what they do in our mind, we can't work with them. They just have their way with us, if you will. But there's an interesting support that we get in our practice. As we develop mindful awareness on benign, ordinary, mundane, recurring experiences like the breath, brushing your teeth, reaching for doorknobs, putting on your shoes. I mean, these are, these are all safe activities that you can be aware of. But as we cultivate this continuity of awareness on these kinds of experiences, there's another quality of mind, there's many qualities of mind that arise with mindfulness, but one of them is ujukata, and this is called straightness of mind. I know that's kind of a cumbersome term, but it means that as the continuity of mindfulness develops, this quality of straightness of mind develops with it. And straightness of mind is the inability to deceive yourself. You see something and you see it as it is, not as you spin your belief about it, not as you spin an assumption about it. You see it as it is. Now, some of you have practiced in a way or practiced long enough or whatever to know that you know, sometimes in practice, we're just going along, minding our own business, and something that happened to us two or three decades ago arises in the mind with such clarity and such refined sensitivity to how disgusting it was or how painful it was or how shameful we were at the time, and we see it for the first time. We might know. We might have known that memory. Oh, we, we know that. Oh, yeah, I had that big blow up with dad, mom, whatever. We know. We know that. But we don't really know it. All we know is our story about it. But when mindfulness gets continuous and the straightness of mind gets developed along with it, and that incident, we'll call it, comes into view, you now can't deceive yourself with what you actually experienced at that time. This is not just recovered memory. I'm not talking about recovered memory. I was talking about this one time in a, in a, in a retreat like this. And some guy who's a court uh, uh, expert testimony on the falsity of recovered memory challenged me. <laughs> okay. okay, well, that's his belief. And it may be so. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, the mind is a perfect camcorder. It has recorded everything that has ever been seen, heard, felt, smelled, thought. Not just through this lifetime, but for a long time. And it's all in there. And when we develop, or when mindfulness is developed along with straightness of mind, we can recover. We can see things as they really... We can experience things as they were. It's not easy. It's not easy. But this straightness of mind helps us to see, oh, this is what I actually felt. This is what I actually feel, even now in the present moment. You know, we're not spinning a story like, oh, I'm really happy when you're really not happy. You can't spin that story. Your straightness of mind won't let you. So the straightness of mind uh, is an ingredient or is an element of owning, psychologically, owning our own experience. Knowing, this is, this is real for me. But when we first see some of these states of mind, uh, we get embarrassed. We feel guilty. We feel ashamed. We feel, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to be that. I mean, when we see it with straightness of mind. I don't mean when we're just acting it out. 
But when we see it with mindful awareness, straightness of mind, we're not denying it, we're not avoiding it, it's in our face, we get it. Often we feel ashamed, feel guilty, we feel vulnerable, we feel unworthy, we feel, we feel all kinds of things that would tend to cause us to deny what we just saw. So the tendency to deny, to avoid, to minimize, to escape, to explain, to rationalize, all comes to the surface as soon as we see them. And so we have to learn to relax. To relax and just say, this is the way, this is the way it is. For me, for now. Own it. Just own it. In the sense of not trying to get rid of it, not trying to minimize it, not trying to blame somebody else for it, but seeing. And this is what, this is what mindful awareness allows us to do. This is my experience. Whatever the causes and conditions are that gave rise to it, that's, that's the way it is. That's the way it was. But it's my condition. It's my experience. I say my in the sense that it's in here. It's not out there. It's in here. And so when we, when we recognize it, this next step of acknowledging and relaxing, owning it, uh, helps us not to just try to minimize it, get rid of it. As Utejaniya puts it, he says, the mind is not yours. The mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. Meaning, oh, what arises in the mind arises due to causes and conditions mostly out of your control. Doesn't it? Conditions out there. Things happen. You know, people at the back of the room over there, you know, they're making all kinds of noises and there's odors and all kinds of stuff. It's like, it's not your, it's, you're not making it happen. It's just causes and conditions are making it happen. But when this experience of reaction to it arises in the mind, it's here. Okay? So the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. Once the conditions arise and it, it conditions a certain response in this mind that we're attending to, then we've got to do something with it. If we don't do something with it, for sure, these defilements will have a heyday. Huh. Okay. So this is a good this is a good little mantra to remind yourself. The mind is not mine, but I'm responsible for it. It's like what arises in the mind arises due to causes and conditions outside of my control, but nevertheless, I still have to deal with my reaction to it. It's important to understand that these torments, these states of mind, arise in reaction to conditions. We don't control the conditions, but in our mind we resort to this unskillful state of mind, this torment, in part because of causes and conditions. Okay, And one of the causes for the arising of all of these torments is unwise attention. We're not paying careful attention. We're paying careless attention. We may be paying careless attention, but we're not paying careful attention. And because what that means is we're not being mindful. We're kind of we're kind of there, but not being mindfully aware. We could say we're generally aware, but not mindfully aware. When we're mindfully aware, we're paying close attention to the arising of conditions and the response. And when we're not paying close attention, we're careless. And so things arise and we don't really notice that. We just notice the reaction. So you can be sure, you know, someone was asking the question today, I don't know if it was in a group or here in the hall, saying something like, you know, when the mind wanders off, I never see it when it goes. You, You never see the mind when it wanders off. That's because it only wanders when there's unwise attention. If you're paying wise attention, it doesn't wander. It stays right. It stays on the, the object, whatever it is. So you can't catch the wandering mind that way. It's due to these causes and conditions, one of which is unwise attention. It may also be, you know, there's other, there's other conditions. We might have weak energy. 
we might have no aspiration, we may have no knowledge or understanding, we may not have the right view about how to work with this. So there's, there's other things, but one element is unwise attention. So that also means that if we bring wise attention to this experience of one of these torments that we're identified with, then wise attention will remove one of its causes and conditions for arising. And if you pay wise attention, that unwholesome mental state cannot thrive very long. Because it thrives on unwise attention. And if you bring wise attention there, it's not going to last. This is a key. This is a key to working with these states of mind. So we recognize what has arisen. We relax our reaction, judgment, avoidance, aversion to it. And then we use our intelligence to think about this a little bit. You know, sometimes we get this assumption, we assume that the instructions in meditation is to don't think. Actually, you can't practice meditation without thinking. You need to think. You need to think about how to practice. You need to think, how do I do this? And support doing it with skillful thought. <coughs> yeah, you get some momentum and you don't have to do a lot of thinking. And you know, in time it gets to be semi-automatic. But you still have to think about how to deal with different conditions. So how do you deal with this? Here it is. It's arisen. You've recognized it. You're not in denial of it. You're relaxed. You're just kind of like, okay, this is the way it is for me for now. What next? The third element in working with the states of mind is to exercise restraint. Now, I say this because these tormenting states of mind demand attention. They love to be acted out. If you can just act out your anger and just give it to somebody else, you're free of it, seemingly. If you've got a desire, you know, exercising restraint is the last thing you think about. The first thing is satisfy it. Just, just satisfy it. You know, that, that way you get rid of the desire. If you, if you have a desire and you're satisfied, you don't have to desire anymore. It's easy enough. So, exercising restraint is understanding, rests on the understanding that to act out these states of mind only strengthens them. You might temporarily kind of shunt them aside, but it's like trying to satisfy a thirst by drinking salt water. You know, if you're really thirsty and you drink some salt water, for, for a, a short time you feel like, ah, there. But it gets worse, doesn't it? That's the way it is if we act out any of these states of mind. There's a momentary feeling of relief, a kind of relief, but it actually strengthens the habit and our tendency to resort to it in the future. So the way that we can exercise some restraint, a couple of things. You know, the question was asked this morning when I'm feeling overwhelmed with an emotional drama, what should I do? You know, can't be mindful of it. Turn your attention to another part of your experience. Still being mindful, open your eyes, no seeing. Go for a walk, no walking. Stand up instead of sit with your eyes closed. Even just go have a cup of tea. You can be mindful doing all those things and it will take you away from the internal domain that is unbearable or that you can't be mindful of. So we'll call it replacement. Replace this state of mind with some other more friendly, pleasant state of mind. We can also exercise some reflection when we're caught in a lot of aversion, you know, irritation, anger, impatience. The antidote to aversion is loving kindness. So exercise your loving kindness. If you're feeling, you know, indignant and outraged and impatient and angry at, you know, anything, you know, like the local political situation or anything like that, 
practice loving kindness. It sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? It's like, why am I going to want those people to be happy? Because if they were really happy, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. Then, ah, okay. So there's some wisdom to practicing loving kindness when aversion enters mind. Or if you're caught in the blame game, you're blaming anybody for what's going on with you, what, how you're feeling, then to exercise some forgiveness. Yeah, maybe they, maybe they were a proximate cause for you being in this unpleasant situation. But blaming other people isn't going to deal with your suffering. So, if you can exercise some forgiveness. Or if you're caught in doubt, and you're just kind of trying to figure it out. You know, trying to figure out doubt in practice only makes it stronger. So, sometimes you can borrow, you can ask a question of a teacher or, or, or read a book and get some information that supports your confidence to continue to keep going. So these are all ways of dealing with uh, overwhelming uh, visitor to the mind. Okay. Exercising restraint in this way. Or as, you know, as we all learn in our 12 steps, you know, avoid. Just don't go there. I don't remember the name of the poet. I never, I never can remember the name of this poet. Aunt Terry Gross, NPR, being interviewed. She's read, read a poem and one line stuck out at me when she said, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. <laughs> and it's true. Annie Lamont. Huh? Annie Lamont. Annie Lamont. Okay. So what that means is, you know, there, there's, there's some dangerous places in your mind. Places that if you go, you'll get caught in desire or fear or anger or rage or whatever it is. Don't go there without your awareness. Don't go there without this companion of mindfulness. So that's exercising restraint. Once we've recognized, we've relaxed and accepted, this is the way it is for me for now, and we're not acting it out, then we need to reframe our understanding. Because so often, when in practice we get entangled in, you know, anger, frustration, and self-judgment, we think, i got to get rid of this so I can get back to good practice. Don't we? We think, I gotta get rid of this anger. I can't practice with anger. This wandering mind, I gotta get rid of it so that then, then I can practice better. That's a wrong understanding. That's delusion. We believe it, but it's still delusion. What I mean is, we need to reframe our understanding that when these states of mind arise due to their own causes and conditions, this is the very place this is the very experience that you're not yet able to be aware of and therefore to train your awareness to learn how to be with it. So we have to remind ourselves this unpleasant, overbearing, unbearable, shameful, whatever it is, experience, this is it. This is what I really need to be paying attention to right now. Because we don't yet know how to. They have, their, they have an advantage over us, if you will. We're unwilling, we're afraid of it, we're, we try to get it, we get rid of it, or avoid it. And all that just feeds it. So we need to bring this, we, we want to consider bringing this courage and this confidence and this knowledge that awareness can be aware of these states of mind. But it takes a willingness. You can't do it with force just have to be willing. And this is the, oh, hold it, reframing our understanding. Because these states of mind are opportunities that we have not yet learned how to take advantage of with mindfulness. They're not an obstacle. They're only an obstacle if you're not willing to try to be aware of them. As Sayadaratajani says, try to recognize that these torments, they're just torments. They're not your torment. They're natural. They happen to everybody. Every time you identify with them or you reject them, they only increase in strength. Thoughts are just thoughts. Feelings are just feelings. Yogis often make the mistake of expecting 
or hoping for good experiences rather than being willing to work with these torments. So, you know, a couple months ago or six months ago, you saw the announcement, oh, Steve Armstrong, seven-day retreat at Cloud Mountain, and you said, I'd like to do that. That'll be fun. I like going on a retreat. You know, you go in, you calm down, open up, spend some time in the forest. It's really pleasant. It's really nice. It's kind of like, phew, de-stress a little bit. You know, that's not what happens here. <laughs> I don't have to tell you. What happens here is we get to face these torments all the time. Right? We would be better off if we thought, oh, good, seven days of looking at the torments I haven't yet learned how to do <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like something I'd like to do. We don't think that way. But actually we should, because that's what, that's what we're doing. So, Sayadaw Ritesani has got it. Yogis often make the mistake of expecting, at least hoping for good experience, rather than being willing to try to work with these torments. He goes on to say, though, as long as you're aware of these torments, you're doing well. We must all be doing really well today. Right? If you were dealing with frustration and irritation and knee pain and anger, you're doing well. That's good. Okay. So, we've learned, we've heard, we've heard about these states of mind. We've learned to recognize them. We learned of their danger. We may recognize them when they arise. We relax our self-judgment about them. We exercise some restraint, don't act them out. Reframe our understanding that this is the very place for being aware, not yet able to be. And then we <coughs> open to. We, we, we allow ourselves to feel into and let these states of mind reveal themselves to us. We receive them. So I talk about skillful attitudes of mind in practice is to be open, receptive, allowing, willing, interested. And when we do, we, we make ourselves sensitive to, or we allow ourselves to become intimate with these states of mind. You know, mostly we want to get rid of them. But what mindfulness requires is that we receive them, that we feel them, that we... I, I use the term feel into. You know, we're, we've got this kind of stuff going on. I don't... And really we need to turn around and say, okay, let me just... What is this really? What is this experience? What's the nature of this state of mind? There was a daily quote from Utejaniya just two days ago speaking to this if there is anger in the mind don't think more about what's making you angry instead notice that there's anger and get interested in it oh there's anger here well this is anger oh, I wonder what the nature of anger is and what is this like anyway bring this awareness continually to your experience in this way you don't work at being angry, you work at being continuously aware. Okay, so we get interested in the nature of anger, the nature of fear, the nature of desire, the nature of shame, humiliation, embarrassment, whatever it is that comes up. Because mostly, we don't like them. You know, they make us feel like, not, not nice. <laughs> right? So when we, when we use the appearance, as Saito says, use the appearance of these torments as an opportunity to investigate their nature. They are natural phenomena. They're not your defilement. Everyone experiences them. This is mindfulness. Mindfulness receives and lets this, this, this investigates their nature and they, re, the, they reveal themselves to the gaze of, of mindfulness. Now, when we're able to do that, open, allowing, interested, receive, become intimate with, we learn something that you can't get any other way. First, we really understand these are not satisfactory. 
There's nothing satisfying about any of them. Sometimes we're deceived and we think, I should be angry at this person because they're such a jerk. And we think that's satisfying. Or if I did get this object of desire, then I'd be satisfied. And yet, you know, when we focus on the object of desire, it's always pleasant. But when we focus on, or when we turn to the experience of desire, it's always unsatisfactory. Always. Okay, so we feel, we really get it. We get this understanding through direct empirical experience. These states of mind are really unsatisfying. They don't offer what they often promise. That you'll be happy with this. You'll, 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 you'll make do. You'll feel justified. You can rationalize it. But you can't. It's not satisfying no matter what you do. No matter how you spin it. It's not satisfying. That's an important insight. That's a Vipassana insight. The insight into Dukkha characteristic. Second thing that we learn through observation is these states of mind arise due to causes and conditions that are outside of our control. If we could control the conditions, they would never arise. But we can't control the conditions. Things happen in the world, in the body, in the mind, in our relationships, in the environment. And poof, here it comes. We can't control, we can't exert control over all the conditions around us and and try to insulate ourselves from ever having to feel potentially afraid or potentially irritated or potentially you know impatient can't do that and when we when we grok that when we get it it's like these things are these things are out of my control this is an important insight it's important understanding it's the understanding of the anatta characteristic this is another vipassana knowledge that these are impersonal. Okay? The third thing that we learn about these states of mind is that if we're willing and we're not resistant and we open to and allow ourselves to feel it and we're not just telling ourselves the story about it but we're actually feeling it, it doesn't last very long. It's there for a while, it's there for a while and then it's gone. Not because you got rid of it not because you pushed it away, it's because that's its nature. It is impermanent. It arises due to cause and conditions, one of which is unwise attention. And as soon as you bring this wise attention, willing observation to it, it disappears. It ends. It comes to an end. When you understand this experientially from your own observation, you realize You don't have to get rid of these tormented states of mind. All you have to do is pay attention to them, willingly, willfully. You know, being willing to bear their unsatisfactoriness. Sometimes they're just painful. Sometimes they're just really unpleasant, but they're definitely unsatisfactory. So we have to bear with that willingly. And if we do, we gain this knowledge, these knowledges, these three insights. And these are what frees the mind from the tendency to resort to these states of mind. If you really deeply understand how impermanent, how unsatisfactory, and how impersonal these states of mind are, you won't go there accidentally, even, even accidentally. You'll know, you'll see, oh, here's the conditions for impatience. Don't waste your time going there. Here's the conditions for, you know, insatiable desire. Don't waste your time going there. And you see it because you understand. You have this knowledge. You have this this wisdom that you gain from your own observation. This is not what you read in a book. You can't get this knowledge in a book. You can read it in a book, but you don't get it as wisdom. You get it as knowledge. Good idea. You can't do it. It has to come from the inside. This is a do-it-yourself job, if you will. When there is attachment or aversion in mind, always make that the primary object of your observation, Utejaniyas is. Don't try to avoid objects or experiences. Instead, try to avoid getting entangled in these torments. Don't, don't try to avoid life's experiences. They can't match it. 
Be careful. Be ever watchful for these torments, though. Don't get entangled in them. He wraps up by saying, as long as you're aware of these torments, you're doing well. In order to understand these torments, you have to watch them again and again. What can you gain from just having or expecting good experiences? If you understand the nature of these torments, they will dissolve. And once you're able to handle these torments, good experiences will naturally follow. Again, always remember, it's not you who removes these torments. (coughs) Wisdom does that job. And when you're continuously aware, wisdom, this wisdom, will unfold naturally. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.